Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. This is our season finale. I'm Griselda, and today we're discussing the idea of American cool. Where did it come from? What does it look like? And is it over? I'll be joined by the writer and academic Sarah Churchwell and the arts journalist Peter Aspden. And after that, I'll speak to the experimental theatre director Simon McBurney, whose show The Encounter returns to the Barbican in London in April. You look cool, Grace. Thanks, Chica. So do you. But what do we mean when we say that something looks cool? It's about a kind of effortless style, a restraint, a nonchalance, a je ne sais quoi. Is it about counterculture, rebellion? It's meant lots of different things over the course of the 20th century and today. And it's it's kind of a slippery term. Even the word cool itself, I think, has lost its cool to some extent. I mean, it's a it's a difficult thing to define. One early definition, the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford is kind of grappling with in an exhibition that's just opened that I saw a few days ago called America's Cool Modernism. And cool in this sense is all about restraint, about detachment, about sort of taking the emotion out of scenes. It's American art from the interwar years, so the 1920s, the 1930s, And lots of artists whose names we don't know in this country, many of them were completely new to me. Their work is not in our public museums, it's not often seen here. Many of these pictures have never left America before. Edward Hopper is really the only well-known name and the sort of recognisable style that we see in the show. And the kind of pictures that he paints, so kind of empty streets at night often, lamplight, isolated figures in cafes, looking kind of melancholic slightly or just sort of pensive thoughtful that's the sort of aesthetic that permeates this this exhibition it's it's eerie it's isolated it's factories bridges railroads these symbols of modernity but also the countryside as well so there's barns and silos artists were trying to define i think what it meant to be American at this period, at this time when America was a young country. So they're grappling with lots of interesting things. And I'm going to talk more about what this movement meant and what its impact has been, particularly, I think, in terms of pop art and minimalism and the conceptual art that we have now, as well as the kind of questions that it raises about what cool is and what Americanism is, what America looks like and how it defined itself. So I'm going to be asking Peter Aspden, who is my former colleague and an arts writer for the FT, who you might remember from previous episodes, and also the academic Sarah Churchwell. She's a professor of American literature at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. And she is also the author of, among several books, Careless People, Murder, Mayhem and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. So, Sarah, Peter, thanks so much for joining me. Hi. Hi. Let's start by thinking a bit about what cool means in the context of the title of the exhibition, America's Cool Modernism. Sarah, what's what's that about? Well, I think it's a really great title, actually, because cool isn't a word that very many people associate with modernism, and they think of it as a later slang term from, say, the 50s or 60s. And what this exhibition really wants to pull out is the idea of an emerging style in American culture of detachment and poise that kind of coolness of personality and attitude that is emerging at the time. And they've really drawn together some some great artists who brought out those ideas really clearly. 
So it's something about kind of restraint and detachment, as there. Yes, is. it is. I mean, you know, it's important to differentiate this sense of coolness as detachment, a kind of more literal sense, to the way it's used today and has been used since the 50s and 60s, which is hip, charismatic, fashionable. Mm. Oh, that's cool. And what's interesting is how the overlap between those two, that how that sense of detachment does become fashionable. I mean, there is an overlap, mm. but they're not coterminous. Well, it's actually it's interesting you say that, though, because I actually researched the 1920s and 30s, and particularly the language of the 1920s and 30s, particularly the slang. And as I've been digging into that, I would make the case, and but I think this is a very kind of arguable perspective, but that idea is very much emerging in the 20s and 30s. Mm. The word cool is being used very occasionally, but it's there to describe art, to describe jazz, to describe style the way we might use it to talk about James Dean or Humphrey Bogart, you know, 20 or 30 years later. But they're actually starting to find that sense of it as a way of expressing a kind of artistic poise that says that personality can be artistic as well, that style is a kind of personal art. Yeah, exactly and, this moment. and it's connected with things going on in society, like a more scientific approach. Mm. It's a reaction, again, to a sort of hysterical strain of Victorian culture as well. So it's just a movement away from that really intense emotion. But it's interesting, Sarah, that you talk about personality because something that's very clear when you go around the show is the real absence of people. Mm. These are cityscapes devoid of people. It's one of the reasons I really, really enjoyed this exhibition is because I think that they're trying to shift our perspective. And it's as if they kind of gently took your face between their hands and just, you know, pushed you 25 degrees in another direction and just said, just look at it this way. It's not as if the American art of the 20s and 30s is all devoid of crowds. I mean, if you Mm -hmm. look at the paintings of George Bellows or of Reginald Marsh, there are plenty of urban landscapes teeming with crowds. But what this exhibition wants us to realize is that there was also a very important movement and interest in what urban landscapes landscapes look like when they are emptied of people. That sense of anonymity, isolation and alienation that we get in the urban landscape, which again, we associate perhaps with a later moment in American art. And what they're showing is that this actually, again, emerges much earlier as a kind of response to the machine age, those sorts of anxieties about what is the human place in this industrial landscape. Yeah. And you get that with the style as well. I mean, you don't see many brush strokes here. Mm. These are sort of very smooth, flat surfaces. It's clean. Mm. And I think, again, you know, it's, it's to do with what's going on. You know, we think about that early industrialization era. It's sleek, it's efficient, it's clean. So they're trying to kind of transpose those values. I mean, in a sense, if you want to look at the city of London properly, the best time to go is on a Sunday, you know, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, get rid of the people. Yeah. And you can look at the buildings <laughs> and it affords us a chance to really look at, the, at what was going on without the people. But there's something sort of anxious about oh, yeah. as, as a response to modernity and to quite rapid change. I certainly detected anxiety in a certain kind of bleakness. and But other pieces have an optimism. Demuth's, of course, yeah. I, I saw the figure five, which is an extraordinary... One of the most, rec- well, the more recognisable yeah, pictures I mean, I mean, in the show. It glows off the canvas. This is the way forward, you know, in a way that European futurism celebrates those things. Here there is a, a very ambivalent tone about it, and mm. some of them are quite depressing, actually. Mm. I think that's right. But I think you do see that sense that they're trying to find their way through this. And so sometimes, you know, there's that spirit of optimism. Sometimes you think, oh, no, this is never going to work. And this, you know, and people are being moved out of the natural environment and into this very hostile built environment. So you get that sometimes. But absolutely, you also get this sense of warmth and brightness and vividness. I saw the figure five in gold is it is one of the high points of the exhibition. It's one of their landmark pieces. You also see in terms of the sleekness that Peter was talking about a second ago, the emergence of pop art. So again, you see the influence of advertising of that kind of glossy mode and the, and, and the interest in representing brands and logos much earlier than most people think. And there's one in particular uh, by somebody called Stuart Davis called Odol. Mm. I don't know what Odol is. It's, it, a, it's like an antiseptic. Okay, yeah. it purifies. Yeah, exactly. It purifies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, you can go from that straight to Warhol. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. You get rid of abstract expressions yeah, altogether. take care of all those things. Bang. It's, it's, it really is amazing. I mean, it's pop art. But also there's something distinctly, I felt, American about that. I wanted to ask you, what what makes these works American? They're moving away from cubism and things. They're looking Mm. to Europe to some extent, but they're also doing Mm. something that's quite distinctly their own. It is the moment when American artists 
start to throw off the sense of inferiority that they had felt all the way through the 19th century, up even through Henry James. There was articulated this sense that Europe was where art was happening, Mm -hmm. that America just wasn't producing anything worthy of the name of art. And you get this movement in the teens and in the 20s to really try to fight back against that and for Americans to stand up and say, no, we can do something interesting that that is art. When Scott Fitzgerald in 1924, which is right smack in the middle of when this exhibition takes place, when he sat down to write The Great Gatsby, he said he wanted to write the great American novel, not because that was so much of an old idea, but rather because it was a new idea. Could there be a great American novel? It was a question mark rather than an exclamation mark. And these painters are doing the same thing, trying to articulate what an American artistic identity might look like. And it comes out in complicated ways in the exhibition as well. There's cultural appropriation. There are ways in which there are white painters taking on native tropes and native motifs in order to say, well, that's indigenously American and and not worrying about the fact that they're not indigenously Mm. American in order to do it. But there's this very conscious effort towards saying, you know, what is specifically and distinctively American about this? And yet in order to do it, they're using European methods. They're using cubism. They're using abstractionism. Yeah, and you you get some quite odd results. I mean, I think Charles Sheeler's Americana, which is a very well-known painting, Mm. he's using kind of the formal the formal tricks which is is picked up and have come from Europe but he's kind of showing shaker furniture in this scene of, of this table with a kind of backgammon set to kind of make some link between an American folk tradition and the formal avant-garde it's sort of an odd painting. It doesn't look very, it's, it's meant to be a kind of sitting room. It doesn't look very comfortable or warm. So here we have kind Instead of, of about, again. Yeah. Here's our history. It's yeah. about a kind of lineage or yeah. about a kind of looking back at, but looking forward at the same time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's important to remember a really simple point that, of course, this is a time at which American artists are able to travel back and forth to Europe and, Amer- and European artists are able to come to, to America. So those influences are much more immediate and the conversations are happening actively. So no matter how much you're trying to say, I'm going to make this distinctive American American art, the influences of Europe are everywhere. And American artists are bringing them back from Paris. Or you get somebody like Gertrude Stein in Paris using the techniques of Cubism, translating them into literature, but writing about an African-American girl called Melantha. And so trying to use Cezanne to write African-American dialect. I mean, so it's a very, very, you know, Mm. to us... That's a very messy way of thinking, but we're very hyper specialized and we have this we have these very hard lines that we tend to draw even among artistic genres that they just didn't pertain. So you see things like Cummings, the poet, Mm -hmm. has a painting. There's Mm -hmm. an abstract painting in this exhibition, which is called Sound. And he's trying to paint the color of sound. And that kind of sense that all of these artistic moments and movements could speak to each other and for each other, I think is something that the exhibition also really brings out. So do you get these same moods, this kind of swinging between anxiety and optimism and exhilaration and sort of eeriness in the literature of the time Oh, absolutely. Again, I would just give you the most famous, which is The Great Gatsby. Mm -hmm. One of the amazing things about The Great Gatsby is that it is simultaneously totally optimistic and totally pessimistic. Right? I mean, it's a completely tragic vision of where America is going and yet capturing all this sense of the American century on the brink. And Fitzgerald, again, was very conscious of that. In 1921, he said, this is going to be the American century. And he writes Gatsby in response to that. And yet it's a tragic vision of America falling apart and of not being able to survive that kind of collision of values and modernity with with tradition traditional ideas. So, you know, you just take something like Gatsby, but you see it all over the literature of the period. Absolutely. Because I think that individually they were swinging between post-war despair that is so much the European response to the war, but America is booming. And there is this sense that America's time has come. And this very young generation of artists are going, hey, maybe it's our time. And of course, in a sense, it was. But again, I'm, I'm kind of quite intrigued by the lack of optimism, really. Of course, these have been picked to make a point, mm, these paintings. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but, but there's not very much celebration going no, on. It's not triumphalist, the, certainly no, not. it really yeah. isn't triumphalist. And I kept thinking of De Chirico, you know, these sort mm. of empty spaces. It's almost nostalgic for an era that hasn't happened yet. It, it's, it's almost post-industrial, mm, yeah. Mm. You know, they're artists. I mean, they are looking to dig deeper into what the threatening aspects of, of I don't this know. I mean, I, I could see a kind of optimism in some of the later works where they move away, also in the narrative of the exhibition, they move away from the city into the countryside and Ralston Crawford paints these barns and silos and there's something about these kind of industrial really, yeah, agricultural really buildings. <laughs> you know, you but they're, the but they're sort of hopeful. They're saying, 
we're self-sufficient. We're, we're providing our mean, own food. But of course, he's painting those during the Depression when, you know, farms are failing all over the place <laughs> and there are terrible droughts. There's a way in which that's a, a reactive nostalgia you know, once there was this land of plenty. Also, I think that, you know, you see it in some of, there's a Grant Wood lithograph there, which is very evocative of some of his rural paintings. This attempt to reclaim a Jeffersonian idyll, the agrarian American ideal. So something that's already passed. Exactly, that we've sort of left that behind, but can we reclaim it through industry? I'm with Peter that I think they had a pretty clear sense that that wasn't really going to work. It's interesting, this combination of nostalgia in a young country because in a way lots of these things that we're talking about are how it feels to be young it's a mixture of anxiety and exhilaration (laughs) hopefulness and yet so much fear we all look at the past and the future simultaneously to try and make sense of the present none more so than artists It's all relative, right? America's young compared to the rest of the world, but it's also measuring itself against its own history. And once you've had 200 years of history and you have a sense of what it is that you were trying to do and a sense within 200 years that maybe you failed, that this American experiment isn't working, you see the same kind of political debates in the 20s that we see today. This question about what to do about rampant inequality, the fact that farms were massively failing well before the Depression. And that's very much an active political cultural debate. And then you see the same kinds of anxieties about what should America American culture look like at that point that you see now. And so how does the idea of cool as it develops over the 20th century speak to these concerns of what it means to be American? Yeah, well, that's that's the really interesting thing. I mean, there's a lovely little early Hopper piece, um, which is correctly described as a a tonal precursor of film noir Mm. of this man and a great shadow and a weird angle. And and film noir is really interesting because Mm. you get the archetypal cool hero in film noir. So, so, you know, Bogart Mm. in Casablanca, he is cool, yet you know that something hot has happened inside him. Mm. That, in a way, is kind of incredibly satisfying. And then the look of film noir uses these formal experiments, uses the strange angles, but the scripts are really quite romantic. You get this incredible blend of things, which I think makes for great movies and Mm. and that becomes the tone I think of the whole century cool certainly occupies a role you can see it in in hippie culture I'm not sure you see it in James Dean I mean James Dean's cool in that Mm. he's is that kind of restraint well no but he's hysterical yeah he is I mean if you you know the first scene of Rebel Without (laughs) a Cause he's he's sitting there and he says you're you're tearing me apart exactly but I think that isn't that just a more extreme version of the tension you were identifying in Bogart which is that you know that there's this great emotion inside and yet there's this attempt to project this cool poised detached exterior and and Dean does do that sometimes so that but with Dean that tension is more exposed where Bogart is repressing it more successfully. Right? So, so I think, so sort of I think what you, I think you get this sort of dialectical swing. But but cool is a thing from mm. now on, which will come into culture at various times and then have this really fascinating battle, and it becomes, you know, how much of yourself do you expose? Mm. How yeah, much do you hold back? Do get more expressive. I mean, definitely in the post-war period, it feels like this move away from such extreme detachment and restraint. There's a sense of that being shaken off a bit. I mean, even in you know, I think abstract expressionism. You know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot since seeing the show. Mm. You know, and I just think it swings back and forth. Mm. It's almost impossible to generalise about. In the '60s, things kind of blow up, but there's also this sense where you kind of, in the rejection of the values, that's a kind of coolness. It's saying, oh, "Okay, I've looked at that, mm. but I don't like it." So. And of course, you can make the you can you can make the claim about almost any era because of that dialectical tension that you're talking about, because all human beings are actually moving between. Mm these poles. So certainly the idea that Victorians were emotional is not something that a lot of people at the time would recognise in a way of depicting the Victorians because they viewed them as repressed, mm. right? And we still talk about the Victorians <laughs> as repressed, right? So as cool, as detached, as refusing to show emotion. In the 20s, many American artists certainly, and, and the youthful generation in the 20s, would have seen themselves as energetic and as throwing off the shackles of Victorian restraint and so that they would be the ones who were, their idea of cool was an energetic cool. Again, this kind of movement between cool and heat is something that you see in the in the writing about jazz of the period. Mostly jazz is hot, mm. but every now and then they start to mm. talk about jazz being cool mm. and it start, that idea starts to Also sort of blue as a cool colour. You get all these kind of things as yeah. well. There's something specifically American, it seems, about the idea of cool. It's a kind of cultural export for America, cool. Mm. I mean, you think of the idea of teenagers. That's about 
cool as mm. as a concept. But again, that that even the worship of of youth as such as a kind of American concept. And again, it's one that comes out in the 20s very, very strongly. I mean, it's something I was very amused to find going through the newspapers of the period is that women were injecting themselves with monkey glands to look younger. And it's basically the Botox of <laughs> yeah. the 1920s, right? Yeah. And so this obsession with youth is something that emerges very clearly at that time. And flappers are very young, right? That's mm. about this even, it's a pre-sexual silhouette, right? That women are strapping themselves down and cutting their hair and trying mm. to look boyish. So that this kind of fetishization of adolescence very much comes out at that time and people are obsessed with the young generation and what are the young generation getting up to? And what they're getting up to is they've got cars and they can go have sex in cars. And so they're getting up to all kinds of things <laughs> that they couldn't get up to before. They were very clear about how transformative cars were in the way that we're very clear about how transformative digital ages mm. and, and computers have been. You know, I think cool is to do with control as well. And of mm. course, this 20th century is about more and more people having control over their lives or having the illusion of having control over their lives. So, for example, you get, you know, medical tests, you know, you'd go in and there are writings of the time telling you to avoid too much love because it's bad for your blood pressure. <laughs> you know, this sort of, OK, and, and we know where that's taken us now, mm. you know. And I think where we are now is very interesting, I mm. think, because what is cool, you see, the point about cars were they were, they were sleek and mm. mechanical and mm. that, but they were also hot in mm. what, what you yeah. could do in them exactly. and you could uh, you know what's yeah, the, the noise of the theme? engine is hot you know, yeah, exactly girls come they here in rear view mirrors <laughs> and, you know <laughs> so there was enough romance in that manifestation of cool to make it very important part of the culture and very long lasting before we get on to this question of kind of where we find yeah. cool today i'm just going to throw out a few names and i want you guys to say uh-oh. Quickly. Like Great. It's, it's a quiz. <laughs> it's called love it, love the it. Cool or Not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to start with an easy one. Yeah. James Dean. Cool. Cool. Taylor Swift. Cool. No, not for me. Michael Jackson. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> Kanye West. No, I'm going to say no. 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 Oh, interesting. He once was, but he's post-cool, passe okay. cool. Okay. Victoria Beckham. No. No. I was trying to choose people who were, you know, could be cool. Yeah, <laughs> Perhaps no, not. I can see, yeah. Mm. Justin Bieber. No. No. Paul McCartney. Yeah. Yeah. Still? Yeah. I think so. Look, yeah. you know, because he dyes his hair. Look, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, no. He's, earned, okay. he's earned the right for the rest of his life. Okay. He's right in a rugby, you know what I mean? That's it. Fair enough. Okay, so well, we can disagree on what's cool and what's not cool. Because yeah, it is to a su- some extent subjective. In today's culture, I mean, it's something to do with corporatization. Exactly, that you think As soon as people, yeah, as soon as people get hold of someone and begin to shape them, and uh, for the express purpose of making money, yeah. bang, you're uncool. Yeah, someone like Taylor Swift, though, I think has then turned that whole process on its head again because which, she's kind of taking exactly, back control. Which is why I, yeah. which is why I ultimately I say that. yes. Yeah. Um, and I think that she's she's articulating certain kinds of personal, again, authenticity to use a, a problematic yeah. word. But it's interesting to figure out who the litmus test, right? Nobody would say Humphrey Bogart is uncool. And it looks nobody with any sense. Nobody would say that James Dean is uncool. It's actually very, it's also a very masculine thing. Mm. Again, because of this detachment and poise and women supposed to be more emotional and supposed to be more sexualized and supposed to be more overt. It's harder for women to be cool. Which is one of the reasons why I want to say that Taylor Swift is because some woman has to be cool. Emma Gonzalez. Very cool. Very, very good example. Really, really and cool. I would actually say the, the great screen actresses of the 30s, again, bring it back to the moment of the exhibition. Catherine Hepburn, very cool. Yeah. Betty Davis, cool as hell. Um, Joan Crawford, not cool, but she's too hysterical to be yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's that, you know, you can start to, to map it that way. And I think that there is a sense there in which there are, as Peter says, and I think quite rightly, when they start to feel manufactured and like somebody else's product is when they start to become less cool. It's interesting now though because I think to some extent technology has totally commodified these people and they're not cool they're brands but if you look at someone like Beyonce she uses her Instagram oh, for she's example. totally cool she's totally cool because yeah. she is completely in charge of her image there exactly. is no one else Control. deciding exactly. her yeah. image yeah. except and, Beyonce and, and again that sense of, author, of personal authenticity mm. whether you like the personality being expressed is much less important than whether you believe in its integrity are there specific places where we find cool today? I mean, it seems like when we look at culture, we are kind of shouty and aggressive and people get outraged. And there's all these kind of ways that we characterise ourselves 
we don't seem like we're in, living in a particularly cool moment. Barack sort of, Obama, are there cool pools of cool? Yeah. <laughs> I just want to go follow him. I mean, again, you may yeah. you may or not may not agree with his politics, but the man is cool, oh. and he's, he's cool <laughs> I mean, actually in both level, senses exactly. of the word, isn't Poised, he? Because he's detached. restrained. Yes, of course, he's not in the White House anymore. No, exactly. So, which uh, the White which House is, is not, not a cool place. Very cool. <laughs> the White House is the antithesis of cool right well, now. Yeah, Trump, Trump really okay. is the, the antithesis, antithesis of cool because of cool. he makes no effort to be detached about anything or disciplined. There's no restraint there. He just. There's also no authenticity there. <laughs> I find it quite hard to find cool now, but then I, I'm at a certain age. I think. Um, Do you mean like in popular culture? So, well, in, I, in you TV know, and music, I, I don't think popular culture can have. You know, the effect that movies and music had in the last century, given what's happened technologically, I can't see that having that power again. But I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, and I'm always taken by surprise. I think Black Panther is an incredibly mm. important and cool movie. And it came from nowhere, as did Hamilton. I mean, you know... Hamilton is cool. Hamilton is so cool, you know. <laughs> yeah. Because cool is about originality ice, as well. It's about being cold. surprising. <laughs> yeah. In artistic Absolutely. terms. Yeah. Well, it's about originality. And it's also about saying the right things. I mean, mm. there's a kind of moral core. You, you've got to be on the, the right so side. So it's not just a surface... Absolutely no. not. And I think that's exactly what we're trying to get at is that, that people can try to project the superficial cool, but you can tell. Again, the way that we know that Barack Obama is absolutely cool, and even people who don't like him would surely admit that the man is cool. Mm-hmm. Part of what makes Hamilton so cool is the way in which Miranda takes current preoccupations and weds them with current artistic styles and then brings in history, which we think is, extra, his- is yeah. extra cool. Yeah. It's like an yeah. you know, extra dollop yeah, of yeah. cool. And yet there is this question of whether that can be reclaimed culturally in the way that Peter's talking about. And I agree. I think we're in a kind of post-cool moment. And I think you're right, too. We're in a very hysterical moment. But given that human history has taught us nothing, if not that the pendulum always swings back, then I suspect that the next generation will react to all of this hysteria with a very great emphasis on some new iteration of cool. I had a week when I saw Hamilton and I saw Black Panther. and That's a good week. Uh, yeah, no, it was. <laughs> there were a couple of other things as well. And I thought, wow, these are really interesting. And I would say, Peter, to counter what you were saying, that there is lots of, of stuff that is cool now. I feel actually oh, no, no. like popular culture is no, in <laughs> a kind of hopeful moment because, mm-hmm. because one of the things that's happening is yeah. we're just hearing from different people. This is something we've been talking about on the podcast quite a lot, but TV now is not just yeah. made by white men. And we, we have this kind of multiplicity which seems that is what's happening now i think black female power middle eastern female power is where i would look for the next manifestation of cool beyonce is cool as hell yeah. as we said yeah. <laughs> and queen wins. queen, <laughs> queen bee <laughs> okay great well on that note thank you peter and thanks sarah thanks it's a pleasure Next up, we have the theatre director, Simon McBurney. He is the co-founder of the group Complicite, and Al and I are both fans of his work. We've both reviewed his productions for the FD. He's an actor, he's a director, he directs theatre as well as opera, and shows that sort of defy easy categorisation. You might recognise his face from films like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, The Last King of Scotland, The Golden Compass... But really, he's known for his his experimental work in the theatre. I saw McBurney's one-man show, The Encounter, in Edinburgh in 2015 and in London in 2016, and it now returns again to the Barbican next month. The Encounter is based on a book by Petru Popescu called Amazon Beaming. It tells the true story of the American photojournalist Lorian McIntyre and his journey into the Amazon in 1969. He was going to find its source and also to document the Mayaruna people and he was doing this for National Geographic. The idea of photojournalism in places like the Amazon and the idea of the ethnographic portrait is very timely because National Geographic have recently published a piece which I can recommend called For Decades Our Coverage Was Racist. To rise above our past we must acknowledge it. And in this piece, the editor of National Geographic talks about the ways that people like the Mayaruna were documented around the world in their magazine over the, over the century. McBurney in this interview talks about the idea of taking a picture, the way in English that we talk about capturing someone in a photograph and that exchange of power and what that means. And the encounter, his piece is really 
about a kind of clash of civilizations, a clash of different cultures and accepted norms. And this guy, Lauren McIntyre, when he goes into the forest and he essentially gets lost, he begins really to question all the kind of Western norms that we take for granted, that we believe in, that we consider to be fact. Things like linear time, separate consciousness is the fact that we can't communicate with, say, trees. He conjures this amazing atmosphere in the piece. We wear headphones, the audience members wear headphones. McBurney on stage has what looks like a head, it's actually a microphone, and when he whispers into one ear of the head, you hear the sound through that same ear of your headphone, and when he whispers into the other ear, you hear it through the other side of your headphone. So the sound around you takes on this kind of amazing 3D quality. I kept feeling like I was hearing insects behind me and hearing people in the forest behind me. It's both quite an intimate experience. It's quite different from theatre in that you're sort of cut off in audio terms from the people around you, and yet suddenly there's a burst of laughter or a gasp of breath, and you and you remember that you're in the theatre and it suddenly feels quite communal. It's a very difficult piece to describe, but one that has really stayed with me over the years. Complicite, of course, are a very international company. They're known all around the world. They headline and participate in festivals from Japan to America to Australia. They headline the Avignon Festival in 2012, which is one of the most kind of prestigious things you can do in the theatre world. There they brought an adaptation of Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita, which then came to London, and Al, in fact, reviewed it, so we will post his review on our Facebook page. Simon McBurney is a pretty remarkable person. His knowledge stretches from science to philosophy to maths to biology, as you'll hear in this interview. So here he is, Simon McBurney. Okay, so we're in the Barbican Cafe, quite quite early in the morning with Simon McBurney. It's very nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. The Barbican is where your work, The Encounter, is about to return to next month. And I wanted to go back to the beginning and ask you about the book you based it on, Amazon Beaming. And what was it about that book that made you want to adapt it for this stage? Well, when I was first given it, I was gripped by the, not only the narrative, but fundamentally what was underneath the narrative. And it didn't occur to me that I would adapt it for the stage. And then I found that I could not put the book away. I kept on going back to it. There was something nagging at me about the way that we see the world, the way that we are capable of listening or understanding another perception of the world which is so radically different from ours that we have to question a great arc of fundamental assumptions that we think are unshakably true but actually are not. And so in the book, the photojournalist Lauren McIntyre goes into the Amazon and essentially gets lost. What does he discover, as it were? What does he learn there? What, what, what's shattered for him in terms of his perceptions? Well, you have to understand in the first place that the history of that kind of ethnographic photography is something that's enormously problematic. I was fascinated because I grew up pretty much in the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology in Cambridge where my father was professor and he was not particularly good at looking after us. Well, I mean, he was wonderful, but he just left us wandering around the museum as children and we would open every single case that was not officially allowed to because it wasn't open to the public at the point at which he left us wandering around taking no care of us whatsoever. And I would look through these books of ethnographic portraits I was very struck. I remember as a child feeling, noticing that there was constantly the same look from everybody being photographed, which had the form of a question in it, which is why, what do you want? Why are you here? I found I was haunted by those photographs. Lauren McIntyre goes in 
to do precisely that, take photographs. And of course, it's very different in German, which is to make a portrait. We, very much in the Anglo-Saxon world, it's capturing somebody else's consciousness, capturing theoretically somebody else's world, but in truth, taking it. Lauren McIntyre discovers is what he suspects, which is that there are a group of uncontacted peoples. In this particular instance, they're a branch of the Matses people in a very, very remote area of the Amazon on the Brazilian-Peruvian border. And this particular group are called the Mayaruna. And he made contact with these people and he got his photographs. But he followed them so far into the forest that, of course, he was unable to get back to his camp. He was hours into the forest without their help. The, unless you know the forest, you have no idea. But they didn't help him for a very clear reason, because he didn't speak their language and they didn't speak his. And so he thought, well, I will get out of here somehow. So he settled in, and at first nobody would talk to him. Then he was adopted by a family, five. They offered him a hammock in their hut. And then the next morning, they moved off. And he realised he had to go with them, and he realised that he was going further and further away from his camp. And he wakes up one morning, he finds his camera's been taken. And then he finds his camera, and he finds it's been stolen by a monkey. And he sees the monkey, and the monkey pulls apart all the film. And gradually, he is, if you like, dismantled. So you ask me, what did he find there? Well, he found what he expected to find. But then, if you like, what happened was that he was systematically dismantled. And in the, in the play, it seems like, like Lauren's narrative sort of breaks down, it becomes almost trippy as it goes on and there's this sense of kind of minds and collective imaginations of emerging of people. Is the idea of collective consciousness, of a kind of communication that's not verbal and not anything that we, that we know in the Western world, is that something that you believe to be true? I grew up in a very science-orientated house as well as a, an artistic house. And so I need proof of everything. I want to know that something is true and I want it to be established through the process of scientific fact. And so I have an incredibly strong sense that my name is Simon McBurney and that I'm sitting on this side of the table and that you're Griselda and you have much longer hair than I do and you're a different gender and you're sitting on that side of the table and that whatever is inside me, this thing we call consciousness or mind or whatever, is not over there in you and what is in you is not in me, that there is a barrier, there's a frontier, there's a limit. In other words, very simply, this is my own private thing and thank goodness you, can't, you don't know what I'm thinking right now because you might be appalled by it. But what if that is not quite right? Just to open up, what if this thing that we think of as private is part of a narrative that we have developed? So what do I mean by that? Well, I suppose one of the first nudges of question that came to me is being a performer in the theatre. Because when the audience sit there, they are only working with their inner lives. They're sitting there, they're taking it in, and they're imagining this absurd thing that somebody they know quite well, who could be called, I don't know, Simon Russell Beale, or, or I don't know, Harriet Walter, or any actor that you know, and they know them quite well, generally put on a frock and become somebody else. And then they participate in this imaginative act. And in fact, it's the audience who make it real. And then this extraordinary thing happens. Everybody laughs at the same moment. And then everybody starts crying. Everybody's moved. Everybody's touched. And at that moment, the frontier of your inner life overflows into the inner life of everybody else. And you all imagine the same thing at the same time. And the consequence of that is to understand something which is incredibly important and which is actually has a political basis for me, which is that we are not alone. So it's, it's empathy, essentially, that's allowing us 
we are putting ourselves in the position of that person on stage imagining what it's like to be inside their skin as opposed to inside our own skin which isn't quite the same thing as a collective consciousness or or do you think it is well it's a very good question because the moment we call it empathy we restrict it to something we can do and only belongs to us before we decided that our minds were islands the idea of inner life being something much more public was entirely part of our lives. How does that relate to consciousness? Now, of course, I'm not answering your question. I'm sliding around it. Do I believe in collective consciousness? What I do know is that there are moments when I am connected and disconnected from the world around me. And when I am connected, let's put it like that, my experience of that is that I don't stop at the edge of my skin, but that I am beyond that, that I am part of something other. It is an experience sometimes talked of by astronauts, when they look down at the earth because our perspective is very limited the idea of the self and the individual consciousness is also a kind of limitation and comes from a kind of fear there's something that's much more um that's quite comforting about the idea of limitations we like to have boundaries you know even as children there's something comforting about knowing like this is where something ends and this is private and this is public and in the show when things start to break down it's terrifying actually to watch as an audience member to see the sort of disintegration of things that you understand to be true and to watch one man have an experience of that there's something that's very primal in us that wants things to be sort of delineated primal i would say secondary rather than primal. Something that we learn. I think so. I mean, I think we have... Our culture is very much based on an idea of duality in the idea of things being right and wrong, our idea of morality, of yes and no. But I think, as we know throughout the world, not every culture adheres to that kind of dualistic view of the world. On one level, I'm I'm just somebody who tells stories. And I love telling stories, and I love the process of exchanging. The audience and the actor create this event. And what is wonderful, of course, about theatre, what I love about it, is it's, it's completely dispensable. It is then gone. So a lot has happened since the encounter premiered in Edinburgh, where I first saw it, in 2015. Tell me about it, Tell me about it. yeah. What has it taken on new meanings for you? We've been talking about division, about interconnectedness, about the possibility for human communication. Is the show different for you now, two and a half years later? Yes. I mean, you've got to understand, you know, with all my kind of rambling, highfalutin talk, that when I'm actually making something, it's just completely instinctive. I'm not calculating, really. I'm blundering around. It's a lot more like kind of gardening in the sense you don't really know what's going to come up or how it's going to thrive or what kind of weather it's going to find when it comes out. But if you've changed, and the world certainly has changed in the last two and a half years, does that mean that what comes out this time round with the encounter might be slightly different or feel different for you? It will definitely feel different. And I was talking to my co-director, Kirsty Housley, today, who's in Australia at the moment, saying I'm very nervous. You know, I don't know what, how it's going to change. But I am fascinated to see what meanings are going to be teased out of it, what I will want to change, what I, how I talk to people, how I feel about it. There is the appearance in it of my daughter. She was five when it started, and she's now eight. She'll be nine uh, fairly soon. So she is fundamentally different. 
and I'm wondering if that's going to impact on me, whether I want to acknowledge that in any way. Because in a sense, her five-year-old self, which no longer exists, really, has been preserved, and it's, that could be quite poignant. Yes, I mean, it's a wonderful moment for me because when she comes on stage, I feel that I'm not alone. And it's a huge relief because it's quite a lonely show for a number of reasons. It's not just that I'm performing it alone. It's also that it's about being alone and it's also in a way about the loneliness of the kind of existence that we as a species have created for ourselves. Do you like solitude? I don't mean loneliness but I mean just being cut off from from other people, from society perhaps. I'm a theatre animal. So, I mean, what that means is that I'm constantly with people. Until I had a family, that was entirely familial to me. And, uh, and I tried to understand why I felt so at home there. And it's partly, which sounds like a kind of cliche, but it's partly because I found... I didn't know where my home was, that I felt very displaced and uncertain. And as I I have grown up, I've realised, or got old, um, the process of growing never stops. I realised that this is a fundamental problem for everybody, the question of where they belong. Because one of the effects of the way that we have built the world that we have built it is to destroy places. In terms of your theatre company, Complicité, you've said before that you're still considered an outsider, but, you know, this was founded in 83, so a, a long time ago now. Why, why is that? What's that outsider status about? I have to be careful not to uh, pronounce on this. You know, I mean... It, I would absolutely understand also somebody saying, oh, that's bullshit, you're incredibly well-established here, you're, you know... I suppose I have never wanted to be part of an establishment, you know. I feel, uh, you know, I have a, a slight problem with conforming, and my brother calls me constitutionally disobedient. I've always felt very, very uneasy with the sort of systems that this country has in place whereby you do things, which seem to me become more and more entrenched with this, there's even more of a regression towards that in our politics and although it's dividing the country uh, hugely. So you're, I think this is right, co-directing yourself in The Encounter. Yeah but you direct other people, including in operas, and you also act separately in things that you don't direct. I read that you had in an interview described acting as, for you, like being on holiday or like a holiday. It's enormously pleasurable to me to go out and perform. I I don't think I ever really thought that I was going to be a director. So I didn't have an ambition. I didn't go, gosh, I really would like to do that and... I suppose performing is a wonderful thing because you're also just taking care of yourself. I enormously admire uh, uh, many, many directors, particularly those who are extremely calm and organised because I'm I'm neither of those two things. And, and, And I think that when I'm acting, I know I can be responsible for myself. I know that I can deliver for somebody else. And that is like being on holiday I like to be told what to do I mean it sounds unlikely but it is absolutely true I love to be told what to do and then to respond accordingly when I act of course I love just being the the cog in the machine and doing what I can do to the best of my ability when I'm directing or writing or making what I love is the process of collaborating which is a, a, a messy 
activity which requires you even if you appear through your panic not to be able to it requires you to listen you know in a sense coming right back to the beginning thinking about this piece and thinking about the world now and the change of the world that you have talked about perhaps I'm thinking now at this moment one of the most important aspects of this piece is going to be how critical it is that we listen to each other in this moment. I've been in the Amazon, I've met a lot of different peoples from the Amazon, I've kept it a very, a very close connection with several people, but I think it is, should be of no surprise to us that they are the ones who understand more than anything else the nature of climate change because many people of these people have a very, very profound connection with their environment. The idea of the consciousness, their own consciousness being limited to the body was absurd to them because they saw outside of them they live in a situation of infinite natural complexity which is com as complex as any inner thought they don't feel that there is any frontier between them and that world and so necessarily if you don't feel that what is outside of you is also within you the way that we feel a responsibility for self-help they feel about the world outside of them and so listening to the sophistication of these views and the profound understanding of the world around them is something, in a sense, that I feel we have to do and have to reconsider the way that we're living if we really feel that we can evolve as a species and if we are to survive. The encounter is at the Barbican from the 14th of April until the 5th of May. It's impossible to describe it, so go and see for yourself. There are still some tickets available. And the exhibition America's Cool Modernism is at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford until the 22nd of July. This is our final episode of the series. Our returns from paternity leave in about a month, and we'll be back shortly after that. In the meantime, you can catch up on some of our best interviews and conversations, including Women After Weinstein with Laura Bates and Renietta Lodge, our special episode recorded at the Hay Literary Festival in Cartagena, which features a new short story from J.M. Kutzia, and my conversation with Echo Eschen about the film Black Panther. We'll post links to the things we've talked about and features from the FT on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast. And you can also get in touch with us by emailing everythingelse at ft.com. This podcast is produced by Chica Ayres. I've been Griselda Murray-Brown and our music is by Fatum. Fatum.